are here at the Omaha Blockchain Summit without Simon and without Colin. I'm your special guest host for today's episode of Blockchain Insider, Amber Balde. Today we're going to talk about the future of finance, banking, crypto assets, blockchain, and the communities that support and depend on each. And we're going to do it as a big group discussion with some lovely friends with very different perspectives. So let's just go around the table and say hi. Hey there, I'm Greg DePrisco. I'm MakerDAO's head of business development. I manage all of our external business relationships and partnerships. Hi there, Stephen Becker, uh, president and CEO of MakerDAO, uh, an organization that produces stablecoin and um, probably a point of discussion to talk about today. How do I tell the two of you apart from a day-to-day responsibilities standpoint? That's a good question. So I'm more of the push to Stephen's poll. So I go out there and I'm very much focused on the go-to-market strategy, trying to get us into as many products and technologies as possible. Stephen is very more focused on the regulatory governance and risk side of the equation. I try and keep the, the whole process together. Um, you know, I like to see COO as the chief optimism officer, but um, you know, trying to keep this whole thing together at the same time as uh, bootstrapping it in lockstep formation is, is quite a challenge. So, All right, got it. Yeah, hi, my name is Richard, and I'm working on an Ethereum wallet called Balance. Um, we're trying to integrate deeply with some of the financial protocols that are built on top of Ethereum, such as Maker and several others. And we're trying to make it easier for regular people to interact with these protocols. That sounds really awesome, but I'm actually more captured by this thing on the table in front of me. Um, I heard that you brought this book of light last time you were on the show. So do you just carry it everywhere with you or or what's the deal here? Yeah, if the whole wallet business doesn't work out, I just plan to sell this kind of magical book of light called the Lumio, uh, which is, you can check it out, which is L-U-M-I-O. And uh, it really is a kind of biblical object. Um, And uh, even though you can't see it right now, Hopefully you're feeling the warm glow in your heart. (laughs) Well, I used to roll a paladin, so I have to say, if I could really carry my own holy book of light with me, I feel like that would be a a benefit. That's awesome. Okay. uh, Hi, Sandra. (laughs) Hi, Sandra Rowe from the um, GBBC, the Global Blockchain Business Council, a Swiss nonprofit focusing on helping educating uh, world leaders, regulators, and executives around the world. And I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's always great to see you. Obviously, we go way back to uh, when I was at JP Morgan, you were at CME. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how's it going these days in your kind of new position and world? Juggling lots of different roles and hats. Uh, it's fun. It's crazy. It's wild. Um, never a same day or a dull moment. Um, but we're focusing on educating, building, and um, lots of good stuff going on. And that's the thing. People forget sometimes that this is a global movement, and um, we shouldn't underestimate the power of people coming together. I think we both uh, live in New York, and I don't believe I've ever actually seen you in New York. So um, speaking of, we're in Omaha today, so Ingrid, you brought us together. Uh, how is the day going for you, and uh, what would you like to see out of today? Sure. I'm Ingrid Waddell, and I'm with, our, with First National Bank of Omaha, the innovation and disruption team. Uh, I think today's been going well, despite the snowstorm. We've actually had people that have come and engaged in the day, and now we're getting ready for the afternoon session for our customers. So a lot of learning and expansion of minds going on in Omaha. Awesome. And and Kyle, I think I haven't seen you since a hackathon quite a while ago. Yeah. So what's going on? Yeah. So I'm Kyle Tutt, co-founder of BlockEra. We build um, blockchain applications, both public and private, and work on just developer tools within the ecosystem. All right. So let's get into it. <laughs> 
First, let's discuss how uh, the worlds of traditional banking and decentralized finance are starting to collide. And over time, we're going to collide, combine, split, merge, fight, be friends, et cetera, in the future. All right, so let's start with Greg. Uh, what type of partnerships do you think we're going to end up seeing in the future between all these kind of public decentralized finance projects and some of what banks are doing right now? Well, you know, a company like Maker is actually a bank's best friend because we kind of just abstract everything that they're doing internally to our system. So to give you a couple examples, uh, one of the partnerships we're working on is with a large European bank, and that is for a retail remittance application. Now, as the retail user, you're going to log in just using your bank account, and you'll be able to send money basically to anywhere in the world, but it'll cost a lot less, and, and the bank will be able to make a higher profit margin because they don't have to worry about you know, using their Nostro Vostro accounts and all the stuff in between. So what's interesting is that we're attractive to them not because we're an extension of their balance sheet, but because we are completely off of their balance sheet. And you know, th from a sales perspective, this had nothing to do with us coming in and convincing them that we were the right solution. It was us you know, painstakingly building this liquidity in markets around the world so that they can just hop in and plug in and use us. And how have you seen their reactions change or have they changed with the volatility in the crypto asset markets over the last year or so? Well, <laughs> it hasn't been too helpful because it's put quite a negative damper, but it's kind of forced them to really look at the projects that are actually building these things and look into the technology itself. Interesting. Okay. And, but the financial industry, it's, it's not just banks. So Sandra, what are you seeing kind of happening throughout the industry? And can you catch us up a little bit on how the other major infrastructure providers and industry players are starting to get more involved? Yeah. So let me just make a couple comments on a couple things I'm seeing. I think in 2019, we're going to see the battle of market infrastructure. And that's not just because I come from market infrastructure. I think when you've got incumbents like Fidelity creating a digital custody, uh, digital asset custody solution, when you've got New York Stock Exchange Group ICE launching their own uh, digital asset exchange, you've got six Swiss exchange, you've got some fairly significant regula regulated entities that are now coming in and saying, we're going to take a piece of this market. Now, the likes of Coinbase, Kraken, and all the other, Binance, and all the other exchanges that we know of today in the crypto space are going to have some real competition. I think it'll remain to be seen what that looks like, but what I can guarantee is the regulatory environment, the standards for compliance, and KYC AML are going to go up. And I think what we're going to see are a few big players who actually end up winning around the world. And whether, now that Binance has announced as well, that they're going to have a decentralized exchange launched, that to me is going to be a very interesting ground for how will decentralized exchanges be treated from a regulatory standpoint. And when I speak to regulators today, I think the movement is more towards uh, saying, okay, well, we're going to regulate digital assets in the form of exchanges. But if they're decentralized, what does that look like? And so I think that's a next level of discussion to be had. Yeah. Do, do you think that um, there's some attractive M&A plays coming up eventually, or is an arm, arm's length relationship more advantageous for both sides? No, I absolutely think the M&A space is going to be um, ripe, and it's already started. You had Kraken just buy crypto facilities, which was a CME partner for nine-figure non-disclosed sum. And uh, you also had two Bitstamp last year bought for $400 million, And you also had another one, Poloniex, bought out by Circle for $400 million. I guess the magic number is $400 million. <laughs> but uh, M&A is going to continue. And I think we're going to see a number of significant players come out of this. It may take a few years, and it probably will. But again, just like we've got exchanges that exist today, 
Um, they're not going to be along country lines. I think they'll be along uh, the lines of who are the biggest and the best to be able to service a global market. Absolutely. Um, it, it certainly seems like one way to kind of catch up then is to acquire somebody who's already doing a great job in the space. Uh, the other is to build your own in-house team. So um, moving that direction, last week, JP Morgan announced JPM coin, um, part corporate payment rails, part institutional stablecoin, an option on retail applications someday. I know nothing about this. Um, Richard, so <laughs> as someone without an immediately apparent conflict of interest, what are your thoughts on stablecoin and uh, what JPM has done? Um, so my understanding is they're running an internal version of Ethereum called Quorum. Mm, never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this was proselytized by a wonderful individual who then left the company. Um, <clears throat> and they're going to use this system to uh, kind of reconcile certain internal payments between different accounts. That's my kind of high-level understanding. I can't say I've dove into it too deeply. I think the unfortunate thing was publications such as Barron's writing articles like this is a Bitcoin killer because it just continues to push the conversation uh, back on, on what these different systems are doing. Um, I think it makes an awful lot of sense for um, JP Morgan to experiment with ways to improve their internal efficiency. But that's totally kind of parallel and not related to what is happening um, with public cryptocurrencies um, such as Bitcoin, Ethereum, and, and, and other ones powered by other protocols. Um, so from my understanding, it was an interesting development that was poorly reported and blown way out of line uh, relative to like how difficult what they did uh, actually was. Yeah, and would one of my MakerDAO friends over here want to maybe disambiguate for uh, the listeners what some of the differences are between, um, between a stablecoin and another stablecoin and something that looks like a stablecoin? Yeah, well, so there's pretty much three types of stablecoins. There's ones that are collateralized with fiat in a bank account. So it's just a pure trust-based peg. There's ones that are using some sort of weird mechanism or algorithm to maintain stability. And those have actually yet to prove if they can even exist. And then there's ones like DAI, which is what we produce, that are collateralized by crypto assets. And crypto assets are assets that exist exclusively on the blockchain. It's something very different from what JP Morgan's doing, because everything they're doing is permissioned in their own systems. But just to add a note on what they're doing, we really like it at Maker. Because for us, you know, one of the biggest challenges, it's not showing people that our technology is immediately useful to them. They can see that. They can see the cost savings. It's getting them to speak our language. So now that we have companies that JP Morgan works with starting to speak our language, we can more easily integrate with them. Interesting. Anybody else want to give their two cents? I was just going to say, from the bank space, uh, I was excited to hear about it. My leadership was also excited about JP Morgan Coin. It's just an introduction to make it more comfortable for banks to have these conversations and to start learning from it. I also think it's interesting that JP Morgan, on the IIN side, is approaching things from an information side, and now they're moving value. So uh, they're covering both sides. So what's IIN mean? Interbank Information Network, oh, right. so compliance screening, essentially. That is correct. <laughs> I don't want to put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, so I think there's uh, 75 or so banks that are signed up for the Interbank Information Network, um, but allows you to do exactly what we're saying there to kind of uh, solve some of the compliance challenges of swapping information uh, over time, which might happen even via emails today, uh, to digitize that in a kind of a secure way. 
And and I think it's great that it's J.P. Morgan because it's as big as it is has gotten so much um, fanfare over this. But there was another little known article last week up Signature Bank, which is a smaller bank out of New York, which actually says that they were the first to actually do this. The point being is, I think the more banks look to um, creating efficiencies for themselves and adopting whether their own settlement coin, utility token, you name it, stablecoin, um, it will only help. I think the dialogue of further education. Um, where I do get concerned, as Richard mentioned, when you have articles like Barron's come out that clearly, well, it's either ignorance or hype, I'm not sure what they were trying to capitalize on, but um, that always takes a step back in education, and that's from an education piece really worries me is when we already have enough of a mess when it comes to people understanding the crypto asset space, and yet we then have to go and undo some of the damage that's done by poorly written articles. Yeah, it's also a bit of a U.S. centric view. Um, as you know, when you look at things like what uh, Vodafone and other mobile manufacturers have done globally with kind of turning minutes into a, a, a transitional proxy um, for dollars, uh, there's certainly an opportunity for every corporate to create their own kind of internal corporate coin for settlements. I guess the question becomes how you get corporations to pay each other. Maybe that's where um, this kind of steps in. But let's step away from stablecoins uh, and talk a little bit about the broader community, how we're creating these ecosystems here. So it feels uh, sometimes out there like some cryptocurrency communities have this kind of me against the world mentality. Uh, certainly there's a rhetoric that, you know, crypto will destroy traditional banking. Uh, on the other side, maybe, you know, Bitcoin's going to go to zero. There's, it's not always holding hands and singing kumbaya. Um, so Ingrid, you've helped bring so many people here today for the summit. Uh, what do you think banking can learn from the people that are, that are building on the world of open blockchains? And conversely, what can they learn from banking? You know, I think that uh, the purpose for today is to bring worlds together, right? So we can start having the conversations to see how we work together. Uh, we have a lot to learn from each other. Banks, for sure, need to start looking at how to do things differently if they want to thrive as things change and how we need to offer different things for our customers. But uh, the other side has to kind of meet us in the middle at some point. So it's just figuring out how do we how do we mesh that together? How do we learn from each other? So transitioning away from the topic of stable coins, let's talk a little bit about the, the wider community and ecosystems that are growing here. Um, it can sometimes feel like cryptocurrency communities have this kind of me against the world mentality, or there's this rhetoric that either crypto destroys banking or Bitcoin goes to zero, and it's not really all kind of holding hands and singing kumbaya. So Ingrid, you've brought so many different people here together for the summit today. What do you think that banking can learn from the people that are building on these open blockchains? And conversely, what can they learn from banking? Sure. Well, uh, that's kind of an intro into what the purpose of the summit is today. We were trying to bring in people from a wide spectrum, focusing on the technology in its current state, like Sandra Rowe, focusing on education with the GBBC and bringing networks together. Uh, as well as the guys from MakerDAO. There's a lot we need to learn about that, about the colliding of our worlds. Uh, and then last but not least, Amber, you tie everything together from a public to private to enterprise to, to crypto world. You help bring it all together to us. The focus of the summit is to bring value to our customers, right? And the purpose is to establish First National as a thought leader in this space and how they can rely on us for education or to start collaborating together on the new networks that we're going to build together and uh, how we can provide networks and resources from all of you guys to our customers. Step in. Yeah, I think one of the things that was really interesting about your presentation earlier was that you 
mentioned that First National Bank was the first to kind of uh, pioneer integrations with the postal mail network where you were delivering banking services through the mail. And at that, that time, that was the kind of network on which you, you, you kind of grew the bank. And then it was investing in and participating in the visa network. And there was this kind of new rail that you identified for money to move on. And you felt that an investment and a kind of integration with that network made sense. And I think what's exciting is we can all see there's now a kind of another network getting built that's kind of global, decentralized and open source and public for everyone to tap into. And it's just a question of how is First National Bank going to kind of make that transition to this, this brand new network? And I think it's very exciting to see uh, traditional financial institutions thinking about investing uh, their time and energy in, in integrating with these open public networks. Yeah, I was going to say, to build on that, I also love the uh, the iterative process that you highlighted that First National took when it was still a startup, because it really hit home about the way that we do business development at MakerNow. So I've, what was the town that you guys went into in Nebraska? Hastings. Hastings, yeah. So you know that's very much the way that we're pursuing pilots right now. We go into a small company and we say, will this work here? If it works here, all right, let's pitch it to a million other companies. Yeah. I thought it was an amazing presentation as well, but I, one of the things that caught me um, was the way that you uh, proposed the initial credit networks as a value to the merchants, whereas a lot of the time people simply think that people wanted credit, but really you need to be solving challenges on both ends of that spectrum to get a full kind of product life cycle, and that's something that a lot of the kind of startups in this space can take away from that as well. Uh, so to, to that end, Kyle, you guys are doing something pretty cool at the summit today, too. Yeah, so uh, one of the biggest problems uh, I've always run into as just building with blockchains and going out and talking to people is uh, they never understand what it is. Um, and so taking from ETH Denver last year, where they ran an event um, where they were basically trading tokens, uh, we're creating an app where people are going to come to the event um, and they'll start trading tokens amongst each other. They have no value, but... Um, we'll then have basically a giant uh, screen that has all of the transactions that are happening during the event. So the person, whoever it is, let's say it's you, Amber, uh, sends a token to Ingrid. She'll be able to, you'll be able to see that transaction as it happens. And then we also have things like a leaderboard, um, as well as diving into the uh, individual transactions of people. Um, and the reason we do this is you get it in their hands, right? Like you need to be able to show these people what this technology is. We can kind of stand up there and talk about it all the time. Um, but until you get it into their hands, they feel how clunky it is, how much, you know, development still needs to happen with it, uh, they're not going to truly understand it. I think it, it's really, you can't um, overestimate how revolutionary it is that you're actually just handing these QR codes and getting people to download an app with this group of participants. Because quite honestly, a couple years ago, it would have been quite a challenge to ask people to download an app and then swap these magic crypto tokens with each other without getting a thousand questions about whether or not this was going to impact their tax returns um, or you know disclosure policies. So just being able to get to that point shows uh, that there, there's incredible prog progress within these financial institutions on understanding and approachability. And I think you're highlighting a really important thing here, which is it is so crucial to try something before you can fully understand it. Um, a lot of people kind of have an interesting opinion about stable coins and the collateralized debt positions and how they work, but it isn't until you kind of open one yourself and maintain it and hold some collateral in one of these systems that you fully appreciate the machinery that's happening uh, and, and the way in which it's working behind the scenes. 
and, and so, the fear of maybe sending to an address you didn't mean to. Correct. Yeah. Or getting liquidated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so before we wrap up, um, I'll just shout out this question, and maybe we can get a response from everybody in a random order here. Um, so what is the, the thing, thinking about this, this ecosystem and the worlds between decentralized finance and the traditional financial industry, what's, what's one thing that keeps you up at night that you actually worry about? Regulation is, in short, making sure that we partnership appropriately so that we have a, a joint sense of what we're actually trying to get to, what the objective is, and not see each other as some sort of adversary on a field that is yet to be defined. It really is a case of saying very clearly up front, let's uh, join as a partner in defining what the landscape looks like and then basically taking the first steps forward. So uh, what keeps me up at night is not making that step quick enough and allowing the regulators to do it for me. And that might be you know, a bit of a problem because you have to sort of work that back and try and reformulate the process again. If um, I think about what keeps me up at night, it's the um, future world, I think, that we are going to have uh, where value is data and data becomes that much more important and we have data wars and we have technology used for illicit purposes. We've already seen the first instances of this and it gets very geopolitical very quickly. Um, what I'd like to see is our government's working towards making sure we shore up our ability, not just on cybersecurity, but related to how we move value around and what that looks like in a world where people and countries will try to use it for very illicit means. I think what keeps me up at night is that we're going to be paralyzed by fear and that we're not going to be like our history where we uh, develop a strategy to understand our business and test and learn appropriately, but that we get overwhelmed by headlines or other preconceived ideas and we don't step forward to try to see how to continue forward. Uh, mine's actually very like specific to public blockchains. Um, it's actually the governance process of using GitHub as like pull requests to like make changes to a public blockchain. It just doesn't seem very effective and it's a very like tactical thing. But uh, to me, we need a better way to communicate as we try to build these systems out. Yeah, I actually also worry about public blockchains, but more in the R&D roadmap, in the sense that if scalability doesn't come soon enough, people will just start, or companies will start making trade-offs that they shouldn't make. And then in five years, we'll find ourselves in compromised networks when it just could have been avoided by an accelerated R&D roadmap. I would love to see a improvement in the tooling around self-custody. I think that if um, the trade-off remains where you either have a extremely good user experience, but um, you're kind of trusting someone with a username and password and for them to kind of defend your keys. Uh, and then at the opposite end of the spectrum, it's if you lose a set of 12 words, um, that's it, and you've lost access to your funds. I think that there's a space to be explored in the middle, and I'm aware of a bunch of teams doing that. And I think that if there was a breakthrough where you could kind of do password reset or identity and identity verification through a network rather than through a company, um, we'd be off to the races in terms of helping many more people um, safely interact with these protocols and have a degree of safety about whether they lost access to their assets or not that currently doesn't exist. Um, it's a kind of either or trade-off. And I'm not convinced that there isn't something 
more uh, more of a balance between the two things. Uh, and so I'm, I'm scared that that won't get prioritized by enough smart people in their research. Um, but I see some teams working on it, so I'm excited. You've all given me nightmares now. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I mean, I guess I can add mine on to the end here, but uh, I think one thing that, that keeps me up is... Um, worrying about the interactions of all of these microsystems that people are creating globally, not necessarily in isolation, but um, solving uh, problems within their own perspective as we start to connect them together. And it reminds me a little bit of the the move fast and break things of early tech companies and, and how we started with just connecting to our neighbors um, via something like Facebook that created systems that perhaps got a little uh, over, over their own skis on what, what was happening. So, uh, Within information security, I hear people talk a little bit now about um, uh, not just threat modeling, which generally talks about understanding the potential risk and downsides to the organization that created the system and the users of that system in so much as they might go away from using that system, um, but abuse modeling of, of what's the gray area of people using the system in a way that it is kind of as designed um, or not necessarily malicious, um, but unintended outcomes. So I guess we'll only see that when we're at scale, but um, good times. Okay, so <laughs> thanks everybody for uh, joining me today to talk about uh, the, the convergence of uh, traditional banking, of the financial industry, decentralized finance, um, crypto, cryptography, crypto assets, crypto tokens, stable coins, and everything else we covered. Uh, and just to remind you all, I'm Amber Balde, co-founder of Clover. Uh, we're building the tools that change how businesses connect to each other and the world's data and help people at every technical experience level build a whole new generation uh, and bring those apps to life. So this podcast is made by 11FS, and they're uh, a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. You can head over to 11FS.com to find out more. <laughs>